This was a discussion that we had at studios as a live event, uh, which was exciting. It was great to be back in studios. And Yael and I interviewed Ben Rhodes around his uh, his book, which uh, came out a couple of months ago and is really worth a read, which is called After the Fall. Um, we talked about a whole ton of subjects, um, but you know, Ben really does a super job in the book of playing out the sort of techno-autocratic um, uh, playbook that uh, Orban and Putin uh, have developed and then con contrasts it with what's happening in China and what Xi is doing in China. Um, there's a ton of really interesting forks and uh, areas to the discussion. Um, I hope you enjoy it. I think I'm, I'm going to flag a couple here is, you know, one is that what does the world look like with three or four, you know, very different ideological uh, bases. A second one is, is that, you know, Ben really talks about how Chi is different than his predecessors. Um, you know, Chi has really consolidated power and is now asserting um, both power this, this domestically. Um, and really he's grounded it in this concept of a Chinese dream of a prosperous, powerful society and really a return to a great power. And what does that mean and how do we uh, in the West uh, react to that is, I think, one of the sort of great questions of our time. Um, the CCP as enemy narrative um, is one which really jumps out in throughout this discussion. And yet also Ben does a really good job of unpacking just how distorted our world became as we post 9-11 sort of portrayed terrorism as the sole enemy. And so, you know, I think there's a really good question here, which is, is to do these ideological extremes actually uh, make us more vulnerable? And, you know, the reality that maybe the CCP is not the only or predefined enemy, and maybe it's also not our friend, and that we've just got to work through trade-offs in between that. And then finally, I would say is, is that Ben, you know, keeps coming back to the question of, you know, how can we get back to building and building big things and really defining the future that we want and the nation, uh, what is the nation that we represent? Or what do we represent as a nation? Uh, there you go, I got it. So I um, hope you enjoy it. It was a fun chat. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, how's it going? My name is Ben Scheim. This is the first time I've done this on this stage in since March 10th, 2020. Um, wow. Uh, we did an event yesterday in the library, which was exciting, but this, it's different actually having uh, an event here, although normally on a Thursday night or Wednesday night, we would have 120 people in the room. I'm excited that there's at least 20 of us or so. Um, Congratulations to all of us for feeling comfortable to be here. Um, but it's just a, it's a good moment for us after kind of weathering a very, very long storm that we're still sort of weathering to be gathering again. Um, so I'm excited to have you guys here. It's a great evening for us to have a first event. Um, for those of you who are tuning in on the live stream, welcome out there. Um, tonight's featured speaker is Ben Rhodes. And I'm just going to grab my uh, bio information. So Ben is the author of the book, uh, After the Fall, which came out earlier this year. Um, but beyond that, he was formerly involved in the Obama administration. Um, I don't have my notes right now, so I'll just wing it. Um, <laughs> um, he, uh, and, and he's going to be in conversation tonight with Yael Eisenstadt, who 
has been a fellow with the Beta Lab program, which is a program that we put together um, with Lupa Systems to help fix the internet, um, and John Borthwick, the Betaworks founder and CEO. So Ben is going to talk at length about what he covers in his book, After the Fall, what he learned in the Obama administration, and in particular, kind of what he sees coming ahead as it relates to security, um, and I think in the kind of Betaworks intersection, how that kind of looks to the future. Um, so we're going to kind of split the conversation up into two parts. Yael is going to talk first with Ben um, to kind of cover where we've been and where we've gone. Um, and then John is going to kind of pick up the lead and look a little bit more into where we're going. Um, we'll open it up to questions at the end. So if you've got them, uh, save them. If you are watching the live stream, feel free and put them in the chat on livestream.com at the uh, URL there, and we'll pull some of those as well. So without further ado, let's have a warm applause for Ben Rhodes, John Borthwick, and Yael Azenstadt. Thanks. Come on up. event. I know. You guys aren't just like boxes on a screen. I've done, you have no, uh, yeah. so for this, having a book come out, I've probably done 25 virtual events, I don't know how many podcasts, and I realize some days I'll be talking for five or six hours, and I'll realize that I'm just talking alone in a room. <laughs> yeah. It's a very strange feeling to, to realize, like, you know, I think there were people listening out there, but... And now you guys can actually see that I have notes, whereas on a Zoom screen, this would have been below. Um, and I don't have my pajamas on. <laughs> yes. I'm wearing pants. Yeah. Oh. So thank you all. Um, before we get started, were there any bio points that were missed? No, no. The, the, we got the book in there. That's all that matters. Okay, yeah. great. So I'm super excited to have this conversation with you. Um, for those who don't know, I also come from a national security past. We overlapped at the White House for a while. Um, before I left and went off to Facebook and all sorts of other crazy things. So there is a lot to touch on here. Um, so many of the themes in your book are really the themes that a lot of us, and myself included, have struggled with over the last, for some it's only the last year, for some it's four years, for some it's decades. Um, so I want to start with just a general question, though. Like, what when, when you set out to write this book, what did you set out to accomplish? What were you hoping to learn in this process? So, um, you know, for me, I, I had gone to work for Barack Obama when I was 29 in 2007 and was kind of spit out at the end of the Obama administration, uh, worked till the bitter end, January 20th, 2017, and, and I was totally flat on my back. You know, Trump had won the election, had set about trying to dismantle every single thing I'd worked on, um, and, uh, you know, that was an incredibly disorienting experience. I think it's always disorienting to leave a position of some political influence after eight years, but when the next guy is Donald Trump, it, it, you know, it's like on steroids. And the point for me is I started to realize, you know, I felt in the Obama administration, particularly in the second term, this kind of building sense of the politics globally just moving in this darker nationalist and authoritarian direction, right? Putin was the clearest manifestation of it, but you saw it in other places. Um, and and even after Trump got elected, when I left the United States, I felt like I could see more clearly what was happening in the United States. It's a bit like being in a dysfunctional family, and sometimes you have to talk to people outside the family to understand what's going on. But I could see that both how we looked from abroad, which was not good, um, and I could see how well, what, the same thing seems to be happening everywhere. You know, And a starting point for me for this book was 
talking to a democracy activist from Hungary, um, and, and I said to him, hey, how did you guys go from being uh, a democracy to a single-party autocracy in basically a decade? And he said, well, that's simple. Viktor Orban, our prime minister, gets elected on a right-wing populist backlash to the financial crisis in 2010. He redraws the parliamentary districts to entrench his party in power, changes the voting laws to make it easier for his supporters to vote, packs the court with far-right judges, enriches some cronies who buy up the media and turn it into a right-wing propaganda machine, and wraps it all up in an us versus them nationalist message, us, the real Hungarians against them, Muslims, immigrants, George Soros, liberal elites. And it's like, well, you could be describing the experience of the Republican Party. And so the jumping off point for me was to go around the world and to, to try to explore why the same thing is happening everywhere. That was basically where this started. Um, and, and as I pulled that thread, you know, I, I came to see a lot of things more clearly and came to make discoveries that, that I didn't know I was going to make at the beginning of the book, which is why I, I really enjoyed the process. So throughout the book, there's several sort of parallel stories that are interwoven. Um, I, again, it's, recommend everybody read the book because we're not going to be able to get into all of it right here. But all of these different stories have the really great lesson for what we're going through here right now. And just to, to point out a few, and then we'll unpack a few of them. There's the American identity post-September 11th. You get a lot into that situation. Um, authoritarianism, what happened in Hungary, what's going on in Russia post-Cold War. Then you move on to sort of the rising China and what that means. And underneath all of that is the proliferation of these new technologies and their impact on democracy. Now, much of our community are tech founders, investors. This is a more sort of tech-focused community. So I'm sure we're gonna talk a lot about that part as well. But let, let's start with the post 9-11 American identity. Um, this is one that really hit personally for me as well, because I, I joined the CIA before September 11th as a sort of idealist who wanted to see what America's role in the world could be post-Cold War, pre-whatever the next big crisis is. And so this, you know, I remember a very different government before September 11th and then a very different march towards things afterwards. So why did you, in the book, you made this a really big point in your book, why did you think this was such a pivotal moment for where we have come to today? Well, you know, I, I, I mean, on a general sense, one of the, the arguments in the book is that America's fingerprints are all over the world today, and that we can't separate ourselves from the fact that after 30 years of American hegemony, the world looks like this, <laughs> that, that there is such a drift towards nationalist authoritarianism around the world. And, and I really, I look at Hungary, I look at Russia, I look at China, and I look at the US as kind of uh, exemplars of this trend in the world. And at first, I, you know, what I'm seeing is in Hungary, right, Viktor Orban, his national, nationalism is very tied up in kind of a post 9-11 opposition to Muslims, keep Islam out of Hungary, keep refugees out of Hungary. He built a, a wall before Trump did. Um, his political identity is really rooted in a kind of Christian nationalist backlash to, to Islam and immigration. And then you go to Russia, and Putin's turn towards authoritarianism, which was always inevitable, but was turbocharged after 9-11. Because what he basically did is in 2002, after a particularly gruesome terrorist attack, um, he used counterterrorism as the justification for everything from 
canceling the election of governors to him being able to kind of consolidate the power of the Russian state in the Kremlin. And then in China, you know, things that look completely horrific and alien to us, like the Chinese putting a million Uyghurs in concentration camps, they call that the people's war on terror. That's literally what they call it. And Xi Jinping actually told his security services to study the United States template for how they set up an effort to monitor certain people after 9-11. And so I'm already beginning to reckon with, okay, well, well, this has been expropriated, the 9-11 framework in other places. And then as American, what I thought about is like, look, our national identity after the Cold War, I came of age in the, in the early 90s politically. Um, we kind of lost that unifying sense of purpose after the Cold War. And we had this decade where we were kind of adrift. We didn't know what made us American in the world. And after 9-11, Bush had kind of marshaled national identity and turned it into this purpose of fighting terrorism, that it's us versus them. And we, he literally compared the war on terror to the Cold War and the war against the fascist Germany and Japan. It was on that par, a mobilization of, of all of society to this new purpose. And you know, I, I talk a lot about the overreach of the policies, you know, from the Iraq war to torture to Guantanamo and the rest of it, and support for autocracy, right? I and mean, we support, as a matter of policy, autocrats uh, across the world uh, under the guise of counterterrorism, but also at home, identity. Because what started as a war against Al-Qaeda, the, the, the us versus them mentality and the jingoism that you saw on kind of right-wing media in the days after 9-11, it morphed into a shifting cast of enemies. Al-Qaeda became radical Islam, which felt like all of Islam, and then that became conspiracy theories about creeping Sharia law, but then the same, the exact same Fox News segment that could be about that could become about immigrants at our southern border, or it could become about a black president, or it could become about Antifa, it could become about anything, and Donald Trump kind of comes right out of that slipstream. He's impossible without 9-11. Because um, all he was doing is tapping into uh, the, you know, the, the us versus them nationalism that had been mainlined principally to the American right since 9-11. So it changed not only other countries, but it, it deeply changed who we are, and that rippled out around the world. So let's pick up on Hungary for a second. And I just want to... Uh-oh. Did that just... Oh, it's back. And I just want to kind of underline this with having worked a lot in the tech industry over the last five years... A lot of people might say, well, what, what is knowing all of this about what's going on in Hungary or what's going on in China, or, well, maybe not as much China, but what's going on in these authoritarian regimes, what does that have to do with us? Like, why, do, why should we as technologists care? Why do I really need to be bothered by any of these political situations? And so in Hungary, what you brought out really well in this book, um, in addition to just describing what happened, you also get into this, like, how Orban really used technology to kind of take what you could call the dictator's playbook and like on speed almost. And now fast forward to today or this week where you have Tucker Carlson reporting live from Hungary. So what, what lessons are you hoping that we might be able to draw from what's happening in Hungary as we think about the future of our democracy? So Hungary is really interesting because it's uh, the Viktor Orban what he understood intuitively is, because I and my editor said the same thing. He's like, you're going to start this book with Hungary? And I was like, trust me, Hungary is actually a chapter about us. Um, one, because Viktor Orban has run the exact same playbook that the Republican Party has here in the United States. After 2008, he understood intuitively that confidence in 
globalization and American-led globalization had collapsed globally, much more than I think we fully appreciated in the United States. The whole system was distrusted. And what he could do is tap into a backlash, not from left-wing populism, but from right-wing populism. I can offer you the traditional identity of blood and soil nationalism. Um, and, 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 and that backlash you know, propels him to power, and then he pursues this authoritarian playbook. And, and the Republican Party did the exact same thing. The Tea Party was literally the exact same kind of political movement that Orban created, and they've run the exact same playbook since. But the other reason that this is so important is not only is he a, a model of a certain kind of right-wing politics, he's at the nexus of, I mean, Hungary is this little laboratory between America, Russia, and China. And so the first thing Orban does is he draws on Putin's support. So he says he, he invites in Russian influence operations. He write, invites in Russian disinformation campaigns because Vladimir Putin wants an autocrat in the middle of Europe because he knows that that will divide Europe and that will give Russia a foothold of influence. Then, Orban gives a, a famous speech in 2014. He says the future is not about democracy, it's about illiberal systems, and we have to look to Russia and then to China. And so then he invites in China, um, the biggest Huawei production facility outside of China in the world is in Hungary. He's just invited, open the door, let's bring in the Chinese tech. He's in now invited in uh, a massive Chinese university that I think a lot of people suspect is also going to be used for other purposes, uh, you know, to put on your old hat, you know, uh, listening purposes and other things. He's saying, hey, this is where things are going, right? We, we, like, first, I'm gonna use the kind of Russian playbook to come to power. Uh, and then I'm going to use the Chinese money and technology to entrench me in power. And it, it, you know, if, I, if, I, if along the way I kind of lose my sovereignty, because at the end of the day I'm kind of looking to these guys in, in Beijing and Moscow, that's okay because I'm going to get rich and, 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 and then I'm just going to feed my people um, grievances. You know, uh, things might not be getting better for them, but I can find someone for them to be angry at. And it can be LGBT people after it was immigrants, it's always somebody. And so to me, this is kind of where this nexus of authoritarianism and technology and nationalism, Orban is where it logically leads unless we make different choices. And that's why Tucker Carlson is there, because he recognizes what Orban is doing, that he's an innovator. And he, too, believes that I don't really care who's getting rich up here as long as I am and as long as we can kind of keep our people motivated by the things that piss them off underneath that. Okay, so now I'm going to shift a little bit to Russia because I personally could have an hour-long conversation with you about Hungary. I think it is something we all need to like, really wrap our arms around more and understand. But also, you obviously write a lot about Russia in the book. And I, I don't think we need to relitigate whether Russia interfered in the 2016 elections. I think we're there at this point. We know this. But one of the things I find really interesting is, you know, there are still, and I know this firsthand, for, even from my time at Facebook, there is still this belief among certain tech leaders, well, we couldn't have possibly seen this coming. We know we have to do better, but we couldn't have seen this coming. And, and so, you know, what's really interesting is, well, if you were a student of history, if you, would, if you were one of my former colleagues in the national security world who had worked in the Cold War, you might have actually seen this coming had you been brought in to really understand what was happening in the tech companies and be able to say, whoa, red flag, I can see how Russia could use these tools. And so I loved, I'm going to read a quote here from your book. You, you mentioned 
that you speak about Putin's desire to portray us as the worst versions of ourselves. And this is something I think a lot of Americans haven't fully grappled with yet. And you mentioned that you were speaking to a journalist who studied disinformation and that they said to you that it's part of the point is to demoralize the opponent. And so I just want to bring up one more point before I get to my question. There is a KGB defector. I've brought this up every time I speak here. Besmanov in 1984 did a warning to America. And he actually walked through the KGB's plan to demoralize America. And they use the word demoralize. And he completely lays out how it's going to happen. Like, it's right there. It's on YouTube. You can find it. So the idea that we couldn't have seen it coming is very different from we have this culture of tech and innovation, and we don't really want to like look backwards. We just want to look forwards. So, and I faced that when I was at Facebook. Like, people didn't want to hear the alarms I was raising. So this all leads to the big question of how do you think we can reconcile this culture of innovation, of, as you call it in the book, we do big things, with this reality of how authoritarian leaders can use some of these same tools against us? I, I, what was so interesting is um, to realize the extent to which you know, China and Russia are mirror images of, of you know, the, the Russians are using technology to just tear things down, and then the Chinese are using technology to build an alternative future. Uh, and, 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 you know, look, with Russia, you know, part of what I, I realized, I mean, I, this is a steady process for me, so I'll, I'll do this as quick as I can, but right in, in 2014, for instance, uh, a, a civilian airliner shot down over Ukraine, and um, the Russians, um, you know, immediately put out three different versions of what happened. Uh, uh, the Ukrainians actually shot it down. It was an accident. It crashed. Uh, they don't even bother to try to make the conspiracy theory sound good. They just they, they put out different stories. Everybody knows the plane was shot down over an area controlled by Russian-backed separatists where Russian military is present, and it was kind of a Russian surface-to-air type missile that shot down the plane. But that truth didn't matter because what I saw them doing, I had a communications responsibility in the White House at the time, is they so juiced the algorithm. If you were a Dutch internet user where that airplane took off, and you just Googled MH17, the, the, the plane, all that came up were the Russian conspiracy theories, right? And meanwhile, the Dutch are doing a meticulous investigation that they are going to announce the results of a year and a half later. Well, by then, the Russians have so sufficiently muddied the waters, you know? And, and this is something Alexei Navalny, who's, you know, uh, Putin's chief critic and opponent and is now in prison and his organization has been smashed since I talked to him for this book, you know, one of the things he, you know, said to me is like his basic experience of taking on Putin for 20 years and spotlighting corruption is one of the things that you have to understand about Putin is Putin doesn't have to defend Putinism. He just have to, he has, he has one message. Everybody's corrupt. Mm. The Americans are just as corrupt as I am. So you don't have to care if I'm corrupt because look at them. Um, and, and Navalny's argument to me was also we've given him plenty of ammunition. You know, the 08 financial crisis says, see, they bailed out their rich people just like, you know, sure, the rich people get hit here in Russia, but that's just the way the world is. You might as well have a strong man who represents your grievances, your nationalism, because you're never going to have anything better than that. Um, and then when Trump gets elected, Navalny says to me, my whole life I've been making an argument that, that better people rise to the tops in democracies, and now look at this guy. And, and, and Navalny says to me, he's like, any idiot on the street in Russia can get in an argument with me and say, how can you say democracy is better? Look who's running America, you know? Um, and, and so I think we have to understand that, that, that Putin doesn't need to win some competition of models here. He has to just make us look like our worst version of ourselves. And he can deploy such force behind it 
that, that, that one of the revelations I had was that me personally, you know, I've been demoralized by the extent to which I've been trolled. And I've had information campaigns running against me. And my Google search is a dumpster fire because it's been manipulated by people. Like, they, they can literally affect the, the mentality and psyche of individuals uh, with, with the way in which they exploit the opening of, uh, of social media. Um, a, a, another Russian explained to me is creating the effect of violence without the use of violence, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about it. And, and what can we do in response? Like, and this is something Obama used to always say to me, is like, we, we can't turn off the internet, and, and nor can we have total control over it. Like, we have to, and this is why I subtitled my book, Being American in the World We Made, we have to, we don't know who the hell we are. Like, we don't even know what the alternative is to what Putin is saying we are. And so the first thing we have to do is just kind of, we have to figure out our multiracial, multiethnic democracy here. And we have to figure out how we want social media platforms to work here. And we have to figure out how we want technology to be developed here for ourselves. All Putin's doing is coming in behind the slipstream of far-right conspiracy theories in America and pouring gasoline on it. He's not even innovating and inventing it, right? And so to me, it's like we have to actually stop thinking about Putin so much and just think more about like, well, what are we trying to build here? Who are we? What is our identity? How do we want these technologies to work? How do we want to regulate them? If we can get that right, um, then we'll at least be more fortified and have more immunity uh, against what Putin's doing. So that's a perfect entree into my last question before I turn it over to John, um, which I was going to say, turning back to us and our search for just what is our American identity now. You, you talk in the book about the end of the Cold War and how... It's, we started looking for our new enemy abroad. And you have this comment in there, but our new Cold War is actually at home. And you know, it's funny that the first piece I wrote six years ago, the title sounds ridiculous now, but the title was American Hate is a Bigger Threat Than Foreign Terrorism. And that's the first piece I wrote after leaving government. And, and so this is not something we're gonna be able to unpack in five minutes, but part of being able to figure out all these pieces, you mentioned the technology piece, the identity piece, the democracy piece, the all of it, how can we get to a place where there is at least a more interdisciplinary approach? Because this is a whole of society problem. It, it, this, this kind of drove me crazy. And as I really reflected after eight years in the Obama administration, uh, this is an argument I'd have with some national security people, some political people, like, it doesn't matter what we do. <laughs> like. Like some of the policies I worked on that I'm proudest of, like are are in tatters because like a lunatic was elected after me, or because for six years, or some of the things that people say, why didn't Obama do this? I say, well, because six years, a nihilistic Republican opposition like refused to allow us to do anything. Like, you know, we would have done, it, you know, and, and and so the point is that that like if if, if we are are at war with ourselves. And let's face it, it's, I, I, it sounds like a partisan comment. I wish it wasn't. I, I was elected writing speeches, or Barack Obama was elected, and I was writing speeches for him about red and blue states coming together. Like, I prefer that, you know. Um, but we can't ignore the fact that, 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 that one faction in our society has become radicalized, right? And, and some people say to me, well, there's always a competition. Um, what's different this time? And one of the answers I give them is technology is different. 
because you can have conspiracy theories that once would have reached a, a small segment of the population and you can hermetically seal 40% of the population when you look at the, the, the information flow of, of right-wing media in this country um, from Fox to online to what's in people's Facebook feeds, th th those people can just believe things that aren't true. Um, and that can be attached, harnessed to a, a more radical ideology like we've seen. Um, and, and so to me, at the end of the day, like we have to figure out like who we are as a multiracial, multiethnic democracy. And in order to do that, I think, and, and this is one of the key things I take out of the book, democracy has to matter more. The last 30 years, one of the things that happened, I think, with the end of the Cold War is the Cold War, look, we made a lot of mistakes in the Cold War and a lot of, there were a lot of inequalities, a lot of, I'm not, it's not a, I'm not, I don't want to glorify that, that age, but democracy had to kind of be, front and center because that was our contrast with the Soviets. That was kind of like, so like I would argue that if you go back and look, even things like the civil rights movement were in part aided by the fact that we had to, to get our house in some better order um, because we were offering democracy as a counterpoint to the Soviet Union. Over the last 30 years, and this is the kind of central argument of the book, profit, national security, and technological innovation have been far more important to America than democracy. And, and I had this moment where I was in Shanghai and uh, I, I, I was woken up in the middle of the night, uh, it was like 10 o'clock but I was jet lagged, and I, a Chinese official came up to meet with me. I was traveling with then former President Obama, so late 2017. And the guy says to me, he's like, hey, um, we know Obama's going to India uh, and, and we don't want to meet with the Dalai Lama. It'd be horrible if he met with the Dalai Lama. And I'd gotten messages like that from the Chinese government before, but what was different this time is that this wasn't a public meeting. I'd actually just been put in email contact with the Dalai Lama's representative, so they're basically saying like, hey, we're, we're reading your email and we don't like what we see in it, don't do this. And so I'm a bit disoriented. <laughs> and, and by the way, they're doing this, they don't care that Barack Obama's next door to me, you know, they, they could care less. And I walk outside though, and I look at the Bund, the Shanghai skyline, and it looks like the future. Right? It looks Blade Runner, people taking you know, selfie sticks, it's beautiful. And it's a monumental achievement how many people have been lifted out of poverty in China. And I'm looking at it though, and there's something, it looks familiar but not quite familiar. And, and the reason it doesn't look quite familiar is in part because of what I'd just been woken up and told. And I realize though that if you take the last 30 years of American hegemony, you take the capitalism and you take the unregulated capitalism and you take the national security fixation and you take the technological fixation and you just drained out the democracy, you would get what I was looking at. Mm. And the, the Chinese Communist Party is actually the logical like, person to take the baton from, uh, from this age. And we have to reckon with that. And, and so to me, it's about putting democracy front and center in our politics and society and in our identity. And, and I'm not certain that we can do that, but I, I, think, I hope we try. And, and I think people are awake to that now in a way that they haven't been. Thank you, thank you. That was, um, I was gonna ask you about that incident. Uh, so I, I, it's one of the perfect bridges. So, so let's talk about China uh, a little bit. And I think one of the things you highlight in the, in the book that when Xi uh, ascended, it was like here in the United States, we looked at it and we just said, okay, here's, you know, we've seen this before. And he had a fundamentally different model and worldview. Can you just sort of outline that? And very much in the picture of what you said before of if Putin's just trying to burn it all down, she is really building something. Yeah. So, so 
you know, I think certain assumptions undergirded uh, the way the United States look at China for since Tiananmen, and that's the kind of period I look at, which is, and one of them is, it's not just the one you hear that we thought that engagement would make them liberalize. Part of it was the Chinese, you know, deferred to us on a lot of things, you know, so it's like on the kind of stewardship of the international financial system, the kind of stewardship of most international political issues, you know, as long as they are in power and as long as, uh, you know, they're, they're growing their economy and hitting certain growth rates and standard of living for their people, um, you know, they, they, they weren't going to push the envelope too hard. Um, and even like, you know, you, you had a nascent uh, online communities in China, you had nascent movements for, for rule of law in China as, as recently as, you know, the first decade of the 21st century. Um, this began to change a little bit after 2008, after the, the financial crisis. And in the book, you know, a Hong Kong official says to me, that's when the Chinese were like, well, maybe these people don't know what they're doing. You know, why, why would we defer to them when they just crashed the global economy? But then when Xi Jinping comes along, the mindset just changes entirely. And it becomes, now's the time. Like, we're not waiting around anymore. Like, we are going to do whatever we want um, it, it, within our own space. And they define their own space very liberally to include, obviously, Taiwan and Hong Kong and the South China Sea. But also, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna start exporting our model. We're going to start advancing Chinese influence beyond our borders. And so if you look at the encroachment into Hong Kong, if you look at the escalation of the creation of a parallel Chinese internet and the, a social credit system, if you look at the internment of the Uyghurs, if you look at more belligerence towards uh, Taiwan, if you look at the creation of the Belt Road Initiative, which has taken off, if you look at all these goals set around indigenization of artificial intelligence and mm -hmm. other things, it all takes off around Xi Jinping. I mean, it's like somebody came in and said, like, we are now going to assume our, our rightful role as the world leader. And, and that kind of has upended, I think, a lot of expectations. And it's forced Americans to, to confront things that they, I think, for too long ignored. Um, in the government, in the business community, in the tech community, across in the entertainment community. Like, we just kind of didn't want to look at the fact that this is a freight train coming, and now the freight train is hitting us, you know. Could you talk for a couple of minutes, because I just want to make sure, the, the police cloud, um, the social score system, could you just talk about that for a few minutes, because I just want to make sure everybody has a level. Yeah, and by the way, I want to say one thing with humility here. It's, I, I'm not a China, like, the, the Chinese do some incredibly innovative things, and we do some pretty, like, th so uh, I, I, what I, all, I'm identifying, the, like, a, a, an assertiveness, um, you know, uh, someone could mount an argument that, that what's wrong with that? And, 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 uh, and now here's what I think is wrong with it. <laughs> um, the police cloud points to this issue. They had created, you know, th their efforts to kind of control information had started with, um, you know, let's kind of kick out Facebook and let's keep out Twitter and let's, let's uh, and then it kind of expands to like, let's kind of try to build a great firewall, let's try to create our own internet. And then, then let's, you know, make sure that you can't access certain information online, you know, certain keywords, you can't search for Tiananmen Square information. But then I think what they started to realize is, well, the data, <laughs> you know, um, if we can have access to, to all data in this country, and we are investing enormous amounts of money in the development of artificial intelligence, you take something like police cloud, if, if what the Chinese are doing is, they are de 
deploying an enormous amount of cameras all over the country um, that is collecting an enormous amount of data, including uh, artificial intelligence, facial recognition data. And that's all going into one kind of database. Um, at the same time, they have the capacity to see what people are searching for online, right? Um, what kind of information they're seeking out, where they might want to go, who they're in touch with, what kind of words are in the emails that they send. Um, not only can they kind of have total control such that political mobilization against the government seems futile, but over time the incentives in the country become incredibly powerful, the incentives and disincentives, because you know if you are a Chinese citizen, if, if, I, if I want my kid to go to a good school, or if I want to be able to get a job, or I want to be able to travel freely, I shouldn't search for certain things online. I shouldn't try to know certain things. I shouldn't associate with certain people. I shouldn't go to certain neighborhoods. There's such a powerful creation of incentives and disincentives that at that point, you're not only controlling someone's behavior, but you're giving a, a state the capacity to control how somebody thinks. Um, and if you look at what they've done in, in Xinjiang with the Uyghurs, it, they've kind of created a total surveillance state. Um, now, to be fair, some of these are technologies that the U.S. developed in the war on terror um, and that Israel has developed um, in, uh, in, in the West Bank and Gaza. The, 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 so, but what they're doing is they're scaling this up to like a, a level that is so beyond what anybody's ever done before in terms of access to data when you have over a billion citizens. Um, and, and it's a degree of power that arguably, like I, I don't know that a government has had before. Right, and, it, and it's a stark contrast to if, if Putin's sort of, if the information landscape in, in Putin's world is making people feel sort of terrifyingly unstable, like everything's shifting, not sure what's real. This is one which is, you know, an information landscape and a reality that is much, much more controlled end to end by the state. It's much more sophisticated control. The Russians don't even try to have that kind of control. They just try to scare you. Like, they, they, they have to make an example out of Navalny so that people feel, you know, like it's not worth it. But it's, they don't have this, I, I really focus in on Hong Kong. Because Hong Kong is fascinating because it's what was basically a pretty free society 15 years ago. Is, and what I did is I talked to protesters, but also just young people, how has your life changed in the last 15 years? And what they all described was this, they call it the white terror, this sense of like, it was incremental. At first it was like, you know, suddenly you can't have certain kind of political rallies. And then it was like they bought up the publishing industry. Then they bought up the media industry, you know, all, all the media outlets. And then it be, kind of became a known. It wasn't even really communicated. It just became known. Don't say certain things on social media if you want to get a good job. You know, everybody's getting rich here, right? But by the way, everything's expensive here now too. And you know, if you put one foot wrong on social media, um, or even in an email that you send, I talked to companies where Western companies where their employees are not allowed to criticize the Chinese Communist Party in internal emails because everybody just assumes that they're reading the emails. And, and so the reason you had the whole city kind of rise up like that, it was there, they all said to me, we knew we were going to lose. It was our last gasp of, exert, of asserting that we don't want this, but it's happening. And you go to Hong Kong and it's prosperous, right? And someone could argue with me and say, well, Ben, this looks pretty good. Like, 
why can't Hong Kong just turn into Shanghai? Like the, you know, and that's an argument that people can make. But the, the counter argument is that the people who are living there did not like it. <laughs> and it was almost like a horror movie where like an external, like an organism comes in and just, you know, without nothing changes on the surface, but everything has changed underneath the surface, you know, and, and that's, that's entirely because of technology. I was uh, I was talking with Yael earlier, but there's a there's a movie which uh, is on Netflix, which is called The Withering Earth, um, which is by the same guy who did the Three Body Problem, who wrote the Three Body Problem, and it's a uh, it it, uh, it did very well in China earlier this year, and it's like one of the few movies which you can get which is in English, and and it's fascinating because they really sort of under the sort of meta narrative there is a single global government. Which is Chinese, which is you know controlled end to end by technology, by a surveillance state, and that that is that's how people live, and that's what people aspire to live in. Yeah, I had one of the characters in the, my uh, in Hong Kong section of my book was this guy Wilson Young, who was pretty prominent. In the he was a, a lawyer who represented protesters, and we had this. It was it was pretty interesting. We he kind of walked me through this whole story of the end to end. The, this sense of a creeping, you know, totalitarianism. He said, you know, they're, they're not just. I realize they're not just trying to control what we do, but they're trying to engineer how we think, you know, because that's how powerful the incentives and disincentives are. And and we're having this conversation, and we're in a really upscale shopping mall because that's like kind of where you meet people in Hong Kong. We're eating dim sum, and there's like a Prada store right over there, and and so all the trappings of 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 what most of the world thinks it would want, right? 21st century prosperity. And I remember I, I got to a point where I said to him, I said, well, it, you know, one of the things that I, I can't get my mind around as an American when I go to like a Shanghai is, how do these people not want to be able to think for them? They, they seem to want the one global government. Is that because you, we're just dinosaurs? <laughs> you know, like, like are, we, are we like, out of step with where this is all going? Or is that because I would argue there's something innate in human beings that at some point is gonna say, wait a second, like I wanna be able to think for myself, you know? And I think so much of the, the history of the next 30 years is going to be this question, will you accept end-to-end -end control um, from a state, um, in the Chinese case, or in the US, maybe from a mix of a state and a handful of companies, for will you trade kind of individual agency for the, some prosperity that goes along with that end-to-end -end control? Um, and, and I think, you know, the Chinese argument to Hung Hungarian is like, hey, you know, like, let us, you know, like, you, you know, look at what we've done. Look at, look at Shanghai. You know, you could have that too, right? And, and, I, and I think this is, now, the problem with that argument is, if you look at most of the Belt Road Initiative, like these are countries are getting screwed. <laughs> you know, they, these are poor countries getting put into debt traps, and so not everybody's gonna, the people who are going to get to live in Shanghai are the people in Shanghai. You know, like any, but in a way, it's just a modern. It's it, that's how imperialism always works, right? And this is just a new flavor of of imperialism, really. Yeah. If you, I'm sure you've thought about this, but if you could have, if you could add a chapter to the book on COVID. Um, you know, uh, you know. There's many people who I've heard who said, "Well, wait a minute, the Chinese did a pretty good job here." And uh, 
what would you, what would be a COVID chapter if you could add that? Well, I, you know, COVID happened as I was, I, I kind of integrated some COVID because um, it was, I was finishing the book and, but I, I you know, what was clear, for instance, was that the U.S., <laughs> like, that the, 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 well, actually, what's interesting is that the, one thing that's clear is that this kind of flavor of right-wing nationalist authoritarian, those people handled COVID, handled COVID across the board the worst. I mean, if you look at the countries that handled it the worst, Putin, Trump, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Modi in India, I think that, like, those are pretty clearly the countries that have, and that's, they're all the same kind of politician, right? Now, the Chinese, on the other hand, um, what's interesting about the, the Chinese response is that you saw the weakness and strength of a totalitarian system. The weakness is they covered this thing up at the beginning and they weren't transparent about it. We still don't really know, you know, and I'm not some, you know, tinfoil hat guy who thinks they were creating a bioweapon in a lab, but I mean, just we, the lack of transparency clearly put a, put us at greater risk, uh, and us, including Chinese people, put people, the, their, their government's first instinct of not reporting bad news up the chain, and then when the bad news is reported to try to cover it up, like, so there was a kind of a catastrophic flaw, if, if it was a, a program that you'd written, a flaw in totalitarianism is, it's like the Russians in Chernobyl, like, uh, the, the flaw is, you, you try to cover things up, you try to obfuscate, lower level officials don't want to give higher level officials bad news, and so, like, at, at the point of origin, which is the most Im important point when you're dealing with any kind of outbreak, you had the biggest failure. Then you have this capacity to mass mobilize a society and have lockdowns and, and handle it, you know, better than, than we did in that respect by far. At the same time, we still don't quite know. I mean, I, I, I don't trust the Chinese data uh, on cases and deaths and things like that. And because they have a, 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 such a nationalist and controlled system, their vaccine doesn't work as well as, as, the, uh, as ours do. So it's just kind of interesting, you know, the, the, like, I, 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 some things worked better, some things really didn't, you know? And, um, and the question is, in the long run, I would rather have a, a competent democratic government um, because competent democratic governments um, you know, in New Zealand or South Korea or wherever, you know, handled this pretty well. You know. Yeah. Um, one more question, then we're going to open it up to questions. Uh, so, uh, the I want to sort of turn to the more positive view. Yeah. Right. Um, because it's pretty dark where, where we've been. But the um, we build big things. Right. That's what I mean. It's so innate in you know. I came to America when I was seventeen because of that and the spirit of entrepreneurship and of building, and yet we, we're we not really building big things now, right? We build a lot of uh, sort of small, trivial technological solutions to sort of, you know, problems that we have, um, but the sort of that mentality of building big things, which I think is, I, I, I sort of view it as a sort of utopian sort of 1930s, 1950s. Yeah, yeah totally, totally. How, how, do we, how do we get back that and sort of national consensus around that and, and, and get back to that? Because that's what... I, I, I totally believe, and I, you know, I have this whole chapter about, you know, growing up in as a New Yorker, and one of my first memories was, 
you know, being taken to watch the fireworks at the 100th anniversary of the Brooklyn Bridge, this thing that was a miracle when it was built. And, and that, yeah, that 30s kind of, you know, well, New York City, like, the, uh, looks like, you know, what America can do. Um, and yet, to be optimistic, I, and I, I still have a lot of cause for optimism, like, because America, American history is kind of a story of, of doing really big things and then screwing up and then kind of riding the ship after a period and then doing some really big things. To me, so to me, if you, if you unleashed uh, America's capacity to do big things and pointed it in a direction, gave it momentum, I have no doubt that we could do that. And to me, the, the glaringly obvious thing looking at us and calling out for this is climate change. And, 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 and I, I do not think, and so some people have said to me, and we, we, I was with Obama when, we, when he made the deal with Xi Jinping in 2015 that led to the Paris Agreement, right? And, and people made these arguments that, well, a totalitarian system will be better able to kind of, you know, transform their economy. Again, one of the problems with that theory is if you look at what China is doing in terms of its emissions domestically, there's some good news there. But everything they're doing globally, they're still building a lot of dirty infrastructure. You know, they're using coal all over the world. They're financing coal. The Belt Road Initiative's got a lot of... If America decided, hey, like we are going to spend the next 20 years innovating our way out of the climate crisis, and we're going to globalize that innovation, and we're just going to change the entire wiring of the global economy, we're going to change the way people live so that we can inhabit this planet. Like, I cannot think of, of a more hopeful, optimistic, exciting thing for us to do, and I think we could do it. Here's the problem. It ties back to what I was saying earlier. We have to believe <laughs> that climate change is real and you need to do something about it. And we're still in a position where it's, like, politically impossible for, like, half the politicians in America to say what I just said because they have been either participating in or tacitly permitting disinformation to kind of manipulate their own voters to think that this is some left-wing, you know, plot to, to create socialism here. So, so to me, these are connected. Like, the, the ability to, 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 to cleanse our democracy, not completely. I mean, we're, never, we're always going to have fights, but the ability to have an agreed-upon set of facts that enough people live in would then suggest, hey, not only do you have to kind of make some fixes to these technologies and platforms you've created, but then let's go, let's go do this, right? If we can do that, there's no doubt in my mind that that could be the, that, that could be the thing that we look back on and say, yeah, America did that. Ben, do you want to... Yeah, let's open up to questions. questions. Who's got a question? Don, you want to start? Wouldn't we also have to, um, I guess, admit our, uh, our history before we before we grapple with what we're going to do for the future, you know, in other words, you know, facts around just, for instance, slavery, um, you know, our history of where we come came from and, and how we were built. Um, I don't see how we're going to do that because I, you know, I agree with you. We're not agreeing on just basic facts. Um, you know, how do, how do you, how do you see things in terms of grappling with our history and moving forward? I mean, I think it's essential. I mean, I think, you know, just take the Orban example, like, um, you know, he's basically focused a lot on history, you know, everything from like, what are the statues in 
Budapest to what is a curriculum, right? And it's been basically a, a, a stealth effort to elevate nationalist and even fascist imagery and to, you know, denigrate anybody who is on the left as a communist and, you know, um, and, and look, the Chinese Communist Party, like, you know, I, I met some, some people in their 30s who like, were like, I didn't know that, that uh, there was a massacre in Tiananmen Square until I left China. And, you know, like, I literally didn't know that happened, you know. So that's, the, and, and so this effort, again, I, I, one of the pleas of the book is we think of ourselves as a democracy. No. Everybody's on a spectrum, right? There's like, let's say there's total totalitarianism over here and democracy here and, you know, we're in the middle here. And when people are saying, hey, we can't even teach about slavery, that is an authoritarian, that's a very common authoritarian tactic because you want to control the understanding of the past because you want to control the future, right? And a reckoning with the past would suggest that we have to make certain changes and we, you know, and, and we have to understand why there's certain inequality in, in, in the society. So to me, yeah, I, I don't think you can, um, I don't think you can in any way shortchange the reckoning of the past. The one thing I'd say is Obama was pretty good at, uh, you know, for whatever mistakes he made, one thing he was good at politically was framing reckoning with history as not a complete rejection of our entire past. So as a matter of politics, if you say to someone, hey, every, you know, what Obama would say is, our capacity to change is what makes us so great. And so therefore, by acknowledging we made these mistakes and changing, we're validating what's great about America, rather than you know, saying America's terrible, right? Like that's how you try to bring some people along, I think. And, and so I think we had, we had to find ways to make these arguments that, that allow space for people to, to, to reckon with the past without kind of rejecting everything about it, you know? Anyone else? Okay. Thank you for your time, and thank you, Betaworks. I'm curious in, a, there's almost a political reawakening for a lot of, a lot of people finding exactly where they line up on the spectrum, and I'm curious how you would define democracy. I mean, uh, so for, for instance, first thing I'd say about this is kind of funny is like one of the weirdest like, um, you know, sometimes you learn about what's out there on Twitter a little bit um, by like I, I tweeted something at like, you know, the height of Trump craziness last year or something about there was a very anodyne thing like this should not be happening in democracy or something. And, and I got like massively ratioed by the we're a republic, not a democracy crowd, you know? And, and then, I, so I, like, that's some dark stuff, you know? Um, so first of all, uh, uh, I think we are, we should aspire to be a democracy. I mean, to me, a democracy is a system in which every individual in that system has equal worth, has an equal say, has equal agency, right? And is treated equally under the law and, and, and has equal opportunity for political participation. So to me, I, I I do think that the, the equality of the people living in a democracy, I believe, is, is ultimately the, the, the test of the health of that democracy. Um, and that's why I say we've always been on a spectrum. Cause, and, and I don't think, you know, like, I don't know that anybody on Earth in the history of planet Earth has ever achieved that entirely. But I think that that has to be the 
um, the aspiration. Because uh, to me, what I've also seen in government in particular, and you've, I'm sure, seen this, you know, it's like, oh, they're going to hold an election. So if they, they, we're just going to get through that election, and then there'll be a democracy, you know? And then it's like, and Obama used to always say to me, it's like, no, it's the stuff that happens between the elections. You know, um, uh, elections are, are only one pretty small part, I think, of what makes a democracy. And to me, democracy is about the, the fundamental equality of every citizen who lives in the democracy. Um, I'll ask my next question, which is, so a, f a few weeks ago we had actually, a, in a private event, the Prime Minister of Serbia who was here, um, and she was kind of talking about how they've done a lot of tech investment recently, but um, one of the things she was talking about is how they've instituted mandatory programming, computer programming education starting in fifth grade level for Serbian children. And I was thinking about how, okay, there are seven million people in Serbia, that's relatively easy to institute, but there's still an agenda that the government's kind of putting forward. And so I'm curious, and I'd appreciate John and, and Yale's feedback on this too, but I'm curious on what your thoughts are for an administration to try to put something forward like that, to, to believe and buy in that, that tech education should be a part of our um, children's upbringings, but also too, what kind of national agendas should we be thinking about if we're trying to to build programs like that and and where and where do you see the guardrails of of civic government kind of setting in or where we should be look, just looking to private industry to take over so it's a great question um I, I'll, I'll a few points uh one that is a little separate but that's made me think with this crowd i should say it um one of the things that i i just believe deeply is there are not enough people in government who understand technology. You know, it's a huge, it's like a crisis actually. That like, you know, we have people making decisions about this stuff, whether it's education or regulation or national security, who don't understand it. And, and just having a round table with some Silicon Valley leaders isn't gonna, you know, uh, answer the mail on this. So there has to be better integration of, between sectors. Then in terms of education, um, it's funny, you know, as I was writing this book, I, I realized w if I was criticizing you know, my book, um, the, the glaring problem of education in this country is, is the, the, the least discussed issue um, because it, it's like the root of a lot of this, right? I mean, um, in, in terms of not just tech literacy and being able to sort truth from disinformation, how are we going to ask people to do that if they haven't been properly educated? You know, um, but but to me, when you when you the problem with national education policy is it's so balkanized, right? Because you can have very innovative programs um, at the at a local school district level, um, but you can't really just do that nationally. So to me, the answer is always got to start with you have to look for who is doing this the best, where in America, right? And how do we take this school district and have a, both a funding mechanism and a, a mechanism to make it portable? So that, yeah, because what I think about is, it's not just about you know starting kids early on tech, it's about, like because I, I say this as someone who has a four and a six-year-old, they're not gonna grow up to do and jobs that look anything like work, you know, that that I did, you know, and I, now I'm talking kind of more as a parent and as an informed citizen than, than an expert, I'm just being honest, but like, what I think about is like, how do we update education, both to integrate technology, but also to kind of be preparing them for 
a world in which what constitutes work is going to be totally different in 20 years than it is now. And I just don't feel that happening at all. Now, luckily, you know, I live in like Venice, California. It's kind of happening in where my kids go to school, but I, I don't think that's happening nationally. So, so to me, it's going to require um, really testing different models of education and models of education that integrate technology at a much younger age um, in, 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 in school districts and then trying to, to scale that up nationally as fast as, and effectively as we can and prioritizing education in a way we, we haven't in a very long time in this country. I'm, I'm going to add a quick extra thought since you, since you go, welcomed Go me. for it, please. Um, in addition to more technologists or technology-minded people in government, I would also offer the counter. There needs to be more people who understand yeah, things yeah, other than technology in the technology world. Um, I mean, even on the job description that Facebook created for me when they hired me to be their elections integrity head. And not just was, doing PR for the tech. Right. Was, and was, they were looking for a computer scientist or engineer. And I was like, that makes no sense. So I would offer that actually has to go both ways. And then as far as a national initiative, this is going to sound corny and I don't care. I'm a really big believer in some sort of a national service, some way that a kid, as an 18-year-old from a rural town in the Midwest and an 18-year-old from Manhattan or Brooklyn have to work together on something. Because we all know, as simplistic as it is, when you can get off that computer screen and get face-to-face -face with someone in a post-COVID world, when we, I mean, we're sort of face-to-face -face now, working on something that is a common project that doesn't have politics involved, you are so much more likely to cooperate. And so it's super cheesy and idealistic, but I, you asked for a national initiative. I think it's a, a great, a great point, yeah. I think some sort of national service. I totally agree with that, yeah. John, do you have anything you want to add on that? Um, how many more questions do we have? We've got, I'd say, three more questions. Oh, okay, yeah. because I know yeah. that there's one which at the end on the meta-narratives, which okay. I want to make sure yeah. we yeah. cover. Yeah. So let's keep going. Okay, cool. Uh, who's next? All right, right here, and then you next. Um, it feels like we're in the midst of a Cold War with China, uh, though it's not necessarily always referred to like that. Um, and in the last one, there were proxy wars in places like Vietnam or Afghanistan. And those came in the form of like boots on the ground. And it seems like this version of a Cold War is more about economic investment in places like Africa. Um, and I'm curious where you think this is going, Ben. And um, you were mentioning how in the last Cold War, there was kind of the binary choice what we were exporting in the form of governance versus what the Soviet Union was. What is the binary choice in this one? Uh, like, what are our developing nations, for example, choosing when they're choosing investment from the US versus investment from China? Yeah, and it's what we, well, in the Cold War, it was what we said we were exporting. Uh, oftentimes we exported something else. But um, um, first of all, I, I want to, you know, as someone who's, you know, been somewhat uh, negative about you know, the, the, the direction of the Chinese Communist Party, I'm actually, and we may get to this meta narratives, but like I, I'm not a big fan of like organizing ourselves to oppose China. Um, in fact, I actually think that the wake up call from the momentum behind the, the Chinese Communist Party model should be much more attention to who are we, you know? And, and, and when I see Biden going and kind of rallying the world's democracies for this Cold War with China, 
I, I kind of wish we were rallying the world's democracies to figure out what is it, the, the question I was asked earlier, what is a democracy in the 21st century? We, ha we don't have an answer to that question yet. We don't have an answer to the question of like, how do we want technology to work in our societies? How do we want to deal with disinformation on social media? How do we look at artificial intelligence and its potential threats to democracy, right? So I, I, the first point is just that I would hope that the energy of being concerned about this alternative model that feels like it's making a lot of headway in the world would focus us more to not just go to war with that model, but to like, hey, what, because they know who they are. And I don't think we know exactly who we are right now. So that's, that's like the first point I make. Because then that leads into, I do worry about real wars. I mean, I got really worried, you know, just because, you know, I mean, Orban, what's so interesting about him, not that Hungary's going to war with countries, but like the messages were like uniting the Hungarian people, including the ethnic Hungarians beyond our borders. And this blood and soil, like pre-World War to, but even pre-World War I kind of mentality. And I remember looking up and seeing, you know, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Narendra Modi, like Tayyip Erdogan, like, like these people will eventually go to war with each other, you know, like that kind of nationalism can lead there. And with China and the U.S., you know, you can get into places where you could argue that right now there's very valuable natural resources in Africa, for instance, that have to be mined to support like what's in our phones and what, you know, what, what, you know, that there are wars like in which people are being killed that are being fought in African countries where the U.S., China, the UAE, Russia are all trying to get a stake of that stuff. Like there are already wars happening. Um, and never mind the fact that something like a Taiwan could just blow up if somebody miscalculates and then you can have a really big, big war. Um, so what I, what, I, what I, and what I worry about, because I've also kind of been a target of this too, is like there's a kind of this industry too of people who fight wars, who spy on people, um, and who will just work for the UAE or the Saudis or the Chinese or Americans or whomever. Um, so part of what I worry about is, is a situation where, you know, the the periphery and it's usually the global south that gets screwed here. But if you already look at Southeast Asia, South Asia, Africa, and you, 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 you take the resource competition, the geopolitical competition, and you layer climate change on top of that. Um, I think you could see a scenario where if this isn't managed well, there's a lot of human suffering uh, on the periphery of where the US and China are competing or just kind of wealthy interests are, are, are at stake, um, whether it's from Russia, the Gulf, or wherever. Um, in, in terms of kind of what we're exporting, I mean, I do think what we should be offering as a contrast is that the democracy, our, our ver version of it, our healthier version of it, not only does it come, come with more um, predictability, I mean, I think the Chinese, Chinese Belt Road Initiative, I think people, I, I began to sense at the end of my time in government, there's a bit of a backlash to that already because they're, they're Countries are being put in debt traps. Populations are being displaced. There's huge environmental impacts. Um, I think we have to be offering like, hey, we're coming here um, to, to actually partner with you and not just to extract something, <laughs> you know, or to pay off some people so we can extract something. Um, and there are going to be clear rules um, that everybody's going to follow. Um, there's going to be more predictability about where investment leads. Um, and that ultimately, um, you know, uh, we're going to follow a rule book. And, 
and these guys really aren't at the end of the day. You know, I think that's, that's the contrast that, that we can draw. And entrepreneurship is a huge val uh, piece of that. I mean, when I was in government, we did this entrepreneurship. We, 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 we polled countries. What do you want to work with the United States on? And of course, we polled a lot of the countries that are right on the fault line, like Malaysia and whatever. And, and it was like, we, we want to work with America because we want to be entrepreneurs. And we, we, we don't want to have to pay a bribe to start a business. We want to know what the rules are to set up a business and have them be predictable. And I think we can still offer a contrast that's both political and entrepreneur, entrepreneurial in terms of what our contrast is with, with China. Okay, next question. Do you still have one? Um, back to almost, almost the, one of the basic issues you were talking about, which is really mind control of whole cultures and countries and how they're thinking. And this is sort of an epistemological paradox, um, you know, free speech versus um, the, um, you know, misinformation, blocking misinformation. And let me put it in the context of a very concrete example. Um, that's because of my background. I know that back in the 1970s, immunotherapy was quack medicine was absolute fringe medicine. People would stop it and block it. 50 years later, it is the future of curing cancer. So how do you, as you approach this you know, paradox of misinformation that's trying to be blocked versus freedom of speech when there really is value on the other side? I, I think um, there's different ways I've, you know, again, just offering my perspective, right? So I know that I don't know every single nook and cranny of this world. But as someone who's kind of seen disinformation from a government perspective, a kind of state national security perspective, from an individual perspective uh, as a target at times, uh, and as just someone you know, who's kind of uh, lives in this world, um, like intent matters, right? So like if someone is deliberately setting out to, you know, uh, to, to disinform somebody, right? I mean, like the, the, the Russian influence operations, they know they're lying, and they're creating a massive amount of, of momentum behind things that they know to not be true to disinform somebody or misinform somebody. And that can be everything from inventing crimes that didn't happen in European countries and saying that you know, refugees committed these crimes to create huge upheaval about refugees. So, so to me, um, because when, when you start to think about regulation and things like this, the, the, the purpose to misinform somebody should matter. Um, I also think that on the speech thing, and, and technologists will have a better uh, handle on this than even me, but like, because a lot of the, the, the turbocharging of disinformation that I saw from a state perspective is automated. Like, why is that speech? <laughs> like, 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 why, why, like, where does it, you know, where, where is the, 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 the inherent freedom of, like, Russian-created, you know, uh, like, bots and, and algorithms? Why is that American free speech, right? And so, so to me, like, intent, whether this is a human being or whether this is an infrastructure that's been set up with an intent to, to disinform, and then what is the potential harm to the population, all this needs to figure into it. I think there's a separate question, the Facebook question, that I, I've encountered, which is just the, why is, why is triggering or sensationalist, sensationalist information what is prioritized by the algorithm, right? And that, that's, a, that's a business model question. But basically, I've seen everywhere from, from here to, to, to Burma, the ways in which like, information that is turbocharged is the information that we know is gonna trigger somebody, that, that, that can make a lot of money, but it can also create a lot of damage. And, and that's where you need a real dialogue between companies and, 
gun. But I, I, you know, I agree with you. Like sometimes, hey, maybe every now and then a conspiracy theory is true too, right? I mean, so I get that you need this free speech space, but I think we should be able to try to. I pointed to a couple, two or three examples, but find some principles, some some common ground to think about. Okay, what's a policy solution to this, either from within companies or companies with governments or governments, you know, imposing it ultimately. Okay, we have one last question and then we'll call it. Yeah, um, you, you said that elections is only one element, small element of democracy, and I agree very, very much with you. The other thing is, uh, U.S. is, is it in the business of only exporting uh, capitalism or maybe uh, like you said, entrepreneurship, inviting people. What about what did you have in mind when you were working with President Obama? When this big uh, brouhaha about the JCPE when you signed with Iran, and if Iran at that time, what did you have in mind when Obama decided to get out of the Middle East and leave democracy for the Iranian mullah to really take care of that, and then Bennett? Netanyahu to take care of that. I just wanted your view on that, please. It's a lot. I I mean, I'll give you my quick answer. I mean, I, I, um, I look. The JCPOA was meant to, to solve a very particular problem, which is just we, you know, here's a way to prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon without going to war with Iran. It was not. I don't think that we did not think it was going to lead to democracy in Iran. It was about solving that problem. I, if you in this book, you'll. I'm very critical of. Our, our Middle East policy, um, because the 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 you know including Obama's um, the um, the the reflex if the if the U.S. government over a sustained period of time prioritizes autocratic allies over any other interests, why would we be surprised that there's not democracy in the Middle East? There's no other region in the world in which the U.S. has so consistently supported autocracy on behalf of our national interests. If you look at from 9-11 to, to now, every one of America's you know, partners, allies, whatever you want to call them in the Middle East, has become more autocratic. And I, 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 like, yes, I, I've been in government. I know that every government is going to have some hypocrisy. Nobody can be totally pure in the world when they're trying to do things like you know, uh, defend people from terrorism and, and what have you, but, big but, like, this is not working. And we can't go around giving speeches about democracy when the second largest recipient of American assistance, Egypt, has 60,000 political prisoners and is entirely, their military is, like, financed by American taxpayers. Like, why, why would we expect people to listen to our lectures about democracy? Um, so, because with Iran, I think, you know, the, the, the default is, you know, um, I mean, because a lot of the people who say they care about democracy in Iran, their solution to that is to back the autocracy in Saudi Arabia in a cold war, in a proxy war against Iran across the region. I don't think that's right either. I, I think we have to start with our example. And that example has to be both what we do in the United States and also who we support. And that's why I don't think we should be subsidizing autocracy in the Middle East anymore. Well, uh, thank you, Ben and Yael and John. Thank you, Ben, so much for being here. Thank you guys all for coming tonight. Um, first time out for all of us. Thanks for being here. Um, and stay tuned for more stuff happening actually here at Betaworks Studios and not just on a Zoom account somewhere. Um, I'm excited that you're all here. And uh, thanks so much. Cheers. Let's give Ben and everyone else a round of applause. Thank you.